HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. Every week on The Farm Report, we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production. Off-air, I am the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. And today, we are continuing our conversation around... Christmas trees. And I am excited to be joined on the line by Lars Crooks. Lars is um, in a long line of Christmas tree farmers. Actually, I, I was really, it's interesting to learn one of the longest running Christmas tree farms in the entire country, Tecumoni Farm out in New Hope, Pennsylvania, where I will actually be spending my Christmas this year. So Lars, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So the very first tree was planted in 1929. Is that right? That is correct. Oh, wow. So um, definitely lots of uh, Christmas tree history in your family. And, you know, we've been talking um, on the program a little bit about the Christmas industry, tree industry more broadly and how it impacts uh, local agriculture infrastructure. And I wanted to chat with you um, about two items in particular. One, um, some of the really amazing conservation work that you and your family have stewarded on your farm. And two, I want to talk a little bit about farm transition. Um, Because you guys have um, had the farm pass from a couple different generations now, I thought that might be a good place to start. Um, when when, When your family was thinking about um, stewarding the farm for the next generation, but then also handing it off from grandparents to parents to kids. Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, you approach those decisions and, and kind of maybe things that worked really well in the past or things that um, maybe didn't work so well? Well, um, our farm, there's a long uh, 
history of actual soil preservation. Our farm is a national historic landmark um, in the agricultural section. So probably the most obvious thing is that um, two of the three fields that we have are, are pretty effectively contour farmed, so, or contour planted. So um, any soil disturbance, it, the soil is retained in the field instead of washing directly down a hill. Um, I inherited uh, the the planting diagrams from my grandfather and have followed them, but I'm now um, replanting the fields and clearing out blocks and subsoiling and, and trying to revitalize the soil that we have there. So um, other than the contour farming, probably the biggest change recently in regards to soil and land use is um, my discontinuing use of uh heavy use of herbicides and fungicides and pesticides in an attempt to have a much lower impact on the surrounding environment from the Christmas tree business. So um, I'm not planting Douglas fir there anymore because of the uh, the amount of fungicide that we have to, to apply to keep them viable in this climate. So, you know, one of the things that we have chatted a little bit about is kind of trends in trees and how folks are taught to ask for different varieties um, that may or may not be great varieties for that region. Um, why, why were you guys planting that type in that space if it doesn't do so well? Well, traditionally, Douglas fir is, has been a very successful tree, um, I think primarily because it shears so well. Um, it, it, it grows very densely, and with a little pruning and shearing, you can make a very dense tree, and your turnover is much faster with the Douglas fir than with the true firs. Um, it grows a little slower than a pine, but faster than a spruce or, or a fir. So it's a, it's a profitable tree to grow. It's an attractive tree to grow. It's a fragrant tree to grow. And for quite a while, it was very successful where we are, but... Um, Things have changed, and, and there are a couple of pathogens that come in. One of them is much harder to control than others, called Swiss Needlecast, and um, it just requires such such vigilant application of fungicide that we uh, we just decided to discontinue that variety rather, you know, with the scale that we grow on, it's not worth it for us. Not worth it for you. Well, I want to just uh, clarify for folks who may not be familiar with contour, farm, contour farming, what, mm-hmm. what, what that means and, and what it might kind of look like if we were out in Bucks County and driving past your farm. Well, um, it, it looks a lot like a topographical map where you have... Um, concentric gradients of, of lines that follow the, the terrain. So um, instead of on a hill having a line that goes perpendicular to the slope, you have a series of lines that are um, coarsely parallel but follow the shape of the hill so that when water runs off, it's, it's, um, if you have disturbed soil, it's, it's caught by the disturbed soil instead of creating a disturbed area that it can follow like a stream bed and erode. Um, that that was a lot of what we saw in the early and mid-20th century um, with heavy mechanized plowing and, and the lifting of the soil and destruction of the of the composition of the soil is when there was heavy rain, it would all the soil would just follow gravity downhill and you'd be left with subsoil and poorer soils at the tops of the hills. So um, your plowing and planting technique... Um, uses uh, 
it's almost like a network to catch soil to keep it from from following the water downhill. Now, that kind of um, really careful look at water management and using that to also protect your soil. I mean, water has played kind of a large role for your farm and for your family. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the Honey Hollow watershed and and how Tecamoni Farm has been part of the development of that watershed and and what kind of prompted that? Sure. Well, um, again, going back to to soil following water and gravity downhill, um, my great-grandfather and other farmers in the area noticed that in heavy rains, the soils were washing off their property and the, the farms downhill were noticing that their their creek beds were getting silted in and overflowing because of the, the farming techniques. And so they got together and started talking about it and realized it was beyond their scope of expertise to try to remedy it. So uh, long story short, they actually got together and, and got some federal assistance and um, and some real leaders in the in the field got together and came up with a comprehensive um, soil and, and water management plan to uh, preserve that watershed. And it's the first watershed in the country where farmers cooperated together to preserve their resources. So we've had um, really three waves of conservation on our property, the first being the initial Honey Hollow project. And then um, as, as that first phase started to come to a close, my great-grandfather and some others founded the uh, Honey Hollow Environmental Education Center. And that went from the late 60s until the late 70s into the early 80s when it became the Bucks County Audubon Society. And so our property has been used since the late 60s for environmental education to try to spread these concepts out into the youth and, and build up a... a grassroots awareness of soil and water conservation in a watershed, and um, Bucks County Audubon Society exists today, and um, members of the organization and myself reached out to a local nonprofit uh, farming operation that's been doing our organic farming in our area, and offered the, uh, the 20 acres of land adjacent to our property that is owned by the Bucks County Audubon Society to them to farm organically and rebuild the soils. And the young man who's who's managing that farm is someone who was educated with the the teachings of these uh, these leaders from the the first wave. So when I turned him on to the the story of Honey Hollow and showed him some of the printed material, he was really blown away that he was literally able to follow in the footsteps of people that that were uh, luminaries in his education. So it's a, it's a very exciting project that, that we're in right now in that regard, not directly related to trees, but related to the watershed entirely. Yeah, well, and when you say Audubon Society, I know folks are familiar with their work, um, you know, with, with birds. And, and I do think it's one of the interesting things that they are such a partner to farmers and such strong advocates for um, conservation of agriculture space. And, and can you talk a little bit about, like, why that that linkage happens? Um, I think that it was uh, probably at that point the best partnership that the um – that the Honey Hollow Environmental Education Center could find um, yeah. as far as as gaining capital to expand their operation. And uh, they actually, you know, the, the Honey Hollow Environmental Education Center was on our property originally, and 
really operated out of a tiny space, a loft area that was heated with a wood stove and our pole barn. And, you know, it was just a few kids, and it really grew. And and um, the network that existed through the Audubon Society really enabled them to grow. And uh, now it's at a point, um, you know, the, the Internet and the economy have changed so many things that, that the Audubon, you know, Bucks County Audubon has to adapt and, and come up with new programs to reach out to the community. And, and retain interest. Um, so I think that the, that the organic farming operation that we're doing there should, should help a good bit in that regard. Yeah, well, I think it just kind of echoes, you know, we started this conversation and we're going to circle back around to, you know, Christmas trees and and this product that we engage with, many of us engage with in our homes, you know, once a year. And then very, very quickly, I mean, as we've seen just in the last 10 minutes, you know, we're all of a sudden talking about watershed and soil conservation and, and you know, bird habitat preservation and community outreach and education. And I think that to me is like one of the most exciting things about um thinking and like living and working in the agriculture space is that it, it, it touches like so many things. The moment you start even just kind of digging into it, there, there's so much, there's like just, there's just like so much there. Um, I wonder for, for you, you know, if you, as you look forward to stewarding your family's farm for the next generation, what do you see as kind of the primary challenges that you know, you're going to be facing in your lifetime to make sure that you're, you're going to be able to hand the farm off, um, in the future. Well, I think that, um, one of the things that affects us most directly is, um, development in our area and, um, actual wildlife management in that, um, the trees that are best suited to grow in our climate, um, unfortunately, are heavily browsed by deer. Um, so I'm looking at the, you know, having to fence and manage wildlife that is uh, very destructive to a crop that I'm trying to grow. Uh, I'm focusing on um, hot weather, drought tolerant um, conifers that. Uh, that are very attractive and, and will do well in a more hostile climate. So, um, <clears throat> unfortunately, they are they are tier one for for deer that are starving to browse on. So there's there's the issue of, of finding a suitable um, Christmas tree crop to continue that operation. And I also think that diversifying uh, the different types of agriculture that we do there is going to be critical as well. Um, in inheriting uh, an operation that my grandfather had operated for nearly 50 years, um, there are fields that have been planted in the same rows for for 20 or 30 years, and there's a lot of soil compaction. And um, because of the use of herbicides and pesticides, a lot of the the vitality of the soil has been lost. So I'm in the middle of a of a transitional phase where I'm I'm refreshing and replenishing the the biological activity in the soil and uh, and learning about that. So um, improving the, the growing environment for the trees and, and choosing if, if we continue with the Christmas tree operation and a, a, a um, quiver of, of trees that are appropriate for the environment, I think are the two biggest hurdles to deal with. So the fact that um, I was skipping to work in a 60-degree day is something that is obviously impacting your planning choices for the future, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there are trees that, 
being able to harvest them and have them stay as a product that someone brings into their home that's attractive and doesn't drop their needles uh, when they're when they're still active and and you know normally this time of year all of the trees would be fairly dormant because of the temperature um, it it gets a little trickier um, you know I had I had one complaint this year from a from a customer that had a variety that normally doesn't have too many issues and and it the tree just had not because it's been consistently warm had not shed its older needles yet so once they brought it into their house. Um, the conifers are like deciduous trees in that they shed their uh, their photosynthetic um, th- their needles, you know, that they use for photosynthesis. But they don't do it as as dramatically as deciduous trees. So they'll get a couple of years use out of it, and the ones that are on the inside of the tree will then drop out when it gets cool in the autumn. And uh, so I had some people that were pretty freaked out by that. And it's just it's directly because of the the mild autumn that we've had. Wow. It's just like a tough thing to you're you're kind of like uh, there's not not too much that you can really do about it. Let's say building a dome over the trees and creating a temperature controlled environment, I guess. Um, yeah. And then maybe looking to some other varieties. It's so fascinating. Well, one more question before I let you go. Um, I cool. do I do want to um, get a little bit of a sense of um, when. So, so for your farm, you know, it's passing down from like generation to generation. I do want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, infrastructure that makes those transitions possible, because I know for a lot of farms, um, you know, for the kind of folks who are, are, are running the farm, it also is often their largest kind of financial asset and the, thi- and the thing that's going to provide them with funds to um, secure their, you know, life and lifestyle in their retirement and or their home or their property. So with a multi-generational farm like yours, how, how do those transitions work? And are there kind of like tools or, or support or things that your family has used that, you know, we might want to share with other folks who are similarly looking at some of these like transition issues? Well, I think that the most effective tool that, that our family has used in terms of retaining the property is that uh, there was a partnership very early on with a land preservation group, and uh, the writing was on the wall that, that the area where our farm was is, is high-value um, commercial real estate or, or residential real estate for development. I mean, the whole corridor between New York and Philadelphia is very heavily developed, and our farm was, they, they wanted to put um, Route 202 right through it, and then there would be homes sprouting up all over. So my great-grandfather had the property preserved, and, um, you know, there, there will be no development on it, and we have an agreement with the Land Preservation Group for family use of the property until 2050. So part of it is not directly owned by our family. It was a, a gift that was given. So um, I think that now in in this era, there are a lot of land preservation groups that are just making sure that farmland stays open and and there are you know people that can work with farmers to to preserve their land and and to sell off the development rights to it, and that the farmers could in turn get a cash infusion into their business that would really make a difference for them as well as the the tax offset offset for the uh, donation if they choose to do that. 
Um, I also, I guess I, I lied. I do have one more final question. Uh, so ran, it was interesting in the, the show before us, Cherry Bomb, Radio Cherry Bomb, which is all about kind of women in the food movement. Uh, their guest, uh, Yana Gilben, was talking about your, your big Christmas tree burning celebration that happens after the holidays. And I'm wondering if you can mm-hmm. share a little bit about that with our guest before we let you go. Oh, the... Um the, the the party that I had at the end of the season? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was... I haven't had one for a couple of years. Um, it, kind of, it kind of takes a lot of energy. But um, we just... I had an employee ask me if we were going to have a party for the, for the staff. And I thought, sure, that would be fantastic. And uh, it just kind of snowballed. Originally, I thought it was going to be intimate and ended up being almost 100 people. We were originally going to have it in the original, in, in our barn. And then I decided, well, we've been outside all winter. We're pretty acclimated. We'll just do it outside. So um, I bought some straw bales and made some sofas out of straw bales and laid out a few fire pit locations and used one of the outbuildings and had a uh, a band that, as you're in Brooklyn, I'm sure quite a few of you have heard Old Rugged Sauce that used to play at uh, at the uh, Brooklyn Rod and Gun Club. Um, <laughs> in any event, got them to come out and play and we just had a, a glorious time um, cooking off a bunch of different food and, and had a fantastic bartender and, uh, and live music. It was. It, we've had a couple of really excellent parties, and I, I think I owe everybody one coming up soon. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. I'm willing to make the trip Indeed. out to Bucks County, just saying. <laughs> Yeah. Lars, thank you so much. Um, it was, I'll let you know. It was, it was really great to learn a little bit more and, and to kind of continue our conversation with, uh, on Christmas trees with you. Well, thanks very much for having me. Hang tight, folks. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our tree talk. We're going to bring you a special recording um, from some interviews I did this past Saturday at the Fort Greene Green Market. So we'll be back. wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org.
Saturday, December 5th, I was on site at Fort Green Green Market here in Brooklyn to learn more about locally sourced Christmas trees. While there, I caught up with their executive director, Michael Hurwitz. What follows is a discussion about Green Market's new partnership with the New York State Christmas Tree Growers Association. We talk about what this means for the state's farmers and NYC consumers. It, it's the first year that we've had a partnership where they are at market. Last year, we did some research on their behalf of where there are potential opportunities in the city and where the existing Christmas tree vendors that set up everywhere are, are buying from to see if there was a way that we could make some, some connections. This year is, the, in fact, the first time we've actually had them at market. It's an amazing partnership. We actually have our youth market program, so we operate 16 youth-run farm stands throughout the five boroughs, and those markets close at Thanksgiving. It's a great opportunity for young people to learn more about agriculture, stay engaged, stay employed, while providing staff for Christmas tree growers that are coming down into the city. So we're working with two Christmas tree growers this year. We're here at Fort Greene, Brooklyn Borough Hall also on Saturdays, Tucker Square, which is across the street from Lincoln Center, on Thursdays and Saturdays, and Sundays in Jackson Heights. Wow. So um, why do you think that it hadn't happened before now? I think New York City is a strange foreign place to a lot of folks that live upstate. Fair, And and (laughs) making those connections... um, you really need someone intentionally making that happen. I also think that, you know, with, with Christmas trees, uh, it's a different operation here in the city. Also, there are so many Christmas tree operators that set up. They're not from New York, and they're selling trees from Canada and from North Carolina and from Pennsylvania, um, and that have had these businesses probably for decades, um, and they're, they're well-established. But this is just another great opportunity to expand our mission, you know, create opportunities for for local growers and have products, a diverse array of products for for New Yorkers. And I think, too, one of the things that strikes me is really thinking about non-edible agriculture products. I mean, people think about the green market as a place to go to get dinner supplies, but you guys are actually doing a lot more than that. I mean, I think I just walked by someone beautiful like fiber rugs and blankets and that type of thing as well I mean how does that kind of fit into some of your like evaluation of like what you want to have at market and when well I'll go back to mission we want to create economic opportunities for growers and for them you know if you're raising sheep then of course you want to sell wool you want to sell uh, the lambskins um, it's just it's it's added economic opportunity you're making use of a whole animal right and at the same time it provides increased opportunities for New Yorkers to have locally grown products it just expands opportunities for farmers and to, to, to throw things on the truck and to expand what we can do year round it's, it's season extension um, and that's really yeah it's, and it's fun to see because more and more farmers I think are thinking about getting creative I think more opportunities are popping up for them to, to do some processing. And it's what we've been pushing for, for for years, so it's nice to see that it's that it's happening. You know, one of the things we we like to say is when you come to a green market, you're able to meet the producers that are there and you're you're able to get a different types of a different type of education. So going back to like thinking that Christmas trees are just trees that are out there they grow, you don't realize that, that there's a process behind it. That 
they actually are beneficial in, in, in various ways, and, and you heard Charles to describe them. And you can talk to the grower and understand what are the different varieties and why why does it matter and why is it important. Yeah. That's cool. One such grower you can chat up at market is Charles Hurd, a seventh-generation farmer in New York State's Hudson Valley. I talked with Charles about how the Hurd family farm came to grow Christmas trees, along with some of the benefits of trees to both their farm system and consumers. Uh, my name is Charles Hurd. I'm a seventh generation farmer from the Hudson Valley, New York. Uh, our home farm is in Clintondale. Uh, we are currently standing in a Penske truck loaded with Christmas trees at Fort Greene in Brooklyn. So th- I'm guessing this is maybe not where you normally spend your Saturdays. No, normally, no. Uh, Normally we spend our Saturdays in the orchard or um, in the packing house where we uh, produce apples and uh, also make wreaths from our Christmas trees uh, to sell to people at our farm. So how did you end up down at Fort Greene? Uh, We were contacted by the Christmas Tree Growers Association and uh, in conjunction with the green markets, um, they were looking to get more local Christmas trees into the green market system. So we were approached and we thought that it was a great idea uh, that we had a a bumper crop of trees and uh, it was another outlet. Um, and it was a great way to get closer to our customers. Yeah, for sure. So, um, seventh generation farmer has your has your family always done Christmas trees, or is there like most is probably an evolution? I'm guessing. Well, yes. Well, the the farm started out like most farms do that had a little bit of everything, um, and uh, we started. We had a sawmill, and there's uh, chickens, few apple trees, currants, grapes. And uh, about uh, 35 years ago, the Christmas tree operation was started to provide for my sister and myself for our college fund. And uh, it was another outlet um, uh, to reach the consumer in the off season. that other than just having apples. Just having apples, yeah. It's interesting. Actually, like, trees, I feel like, are often an investment for college funds, whether it's, like, planting a forest when your kids are born, if, if you're, like, in that type of a region. Yeah. It, it seems that it costs a college fund to grow them um, and get them prepared for market. <laughs> um, and it's a very difficult. Uh, the margins are very slim on trees. But they provide a lot of benefits, um, the open space, uh, uh, small trees uh, produce a lot of oxygen, um, and uh, they have a lot of benefits of opening up our markets to be year-round. To be year-round. Well, we were talking um, with Mary Jean last week about kind of some of the benefits of buy- for consumers of like buying Christmas trees that are local to your region, but... I'm wondering, looking at like your farm operation and thinking about agriculture more generally, like, um, is that the, the main benefit of trees is like the, pr- the provision of open space and then like extending of markets? But um, are there other are other benefits like that, like to the land or to? There, there, are huge benefits to the land. Um, uh, one is that it provides habitat. Um, that it's also um, a very low spray, uh, not intensive uh, crop, and um, the benefits also range to psychologically in the winter. 
it's nice to have a living thing inside your home and it <laughs> yeah. really helps to set the mood and it can be pretty depressing during the winter and I think Christmas trees and living green uh, it helps psychologically to get through that time of the season. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. Actually, I'd like not even really thought about that. <laughs> um, well, so it looks like there's a couple different kinds of trees that you have here today. How um, did you kind of make decisions around what was like the right fit for your operation? Well, it's very difficult because it takes a, a, about seven years to get a, a tree to uh, consumer size. So the decisions were made a long time ago, um, and we kind of erred on the side of caution, and we planted a little bit of everything. Um, so uh, we do have some trees that don't go as well as others, and we rethink replanting them. Um, but you have to kind of look at what the trend is, you know, see what the demography is and who's buying trees, what type of trees, how large are the ceilings in their, in their house, uh, where do they live, um, what are their, uh, you know, buying habits and how much are they willing to spend. Um, and all that needs to go into it when looking to plant a Christmas tree. Yeah, I'm like, what size tree can fit in the back of the Uber driver who's going to take me home <laughs> after right, market. Right, yeah. I would ideally love to get a much bigger tree, but I don't know how to like how I'm going to transport it. Yeah, not everybody has a, a box <laughs> truck to, uh, to carry the Christmas trees, so we know we're dealing with that size restriction. Um, so we need to think about differently for when we're coming down to Brooklyn versus our consumers uh, in upstate New York where we're located are a lot of times looking for the largest possible tree that they can find. That's how it was at my house. We're like, <laughs> can we be bigger than the Joneses this year? For That's sure. Right. So, uh, you know, obviously you guys have reefs out there. And, and so can you talk a little bit about kind of the source material for putting, like, wreaths together and, and garland and the process for that and how that is different than, like, the trees? Um, the wreaths are a value-added product to Christmas tree growing, and they allow you to take what would otherwise be waste material and turn it into uh, a value-added product that you can sell um, that is something that is nice coming into your home and has that nice smell and also um, people only purchase one Christmas tree per household so it gives you another outlet to make an additional sale. To make an additional sale. And then where are you getting the actual like pieces of tree that go into? Sometimes uh, the deer will, will ruin the bottom of a tree or maybe there'll be some mechanical injury through tractor or uh, for any other reason. So oftentimes what we'll do is we'll cut trees off uh, kind of in the middle so we can take the greens on the bottom of the tree so that we're not wasting those greens um, and it allows the top of the tree to have a nicer shape and be a little more attractive. One of the things we were chatting about before we turned the mic on was um, edible products from the tree. Is there anything that we can eat off of a Christmas tree that you recommend? I would not. I, 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 I couldn't recommend it, but I'm sure if it was Googled, there's plenty of uses for Christmas trees. Uh, the gum uh, of the sap was used. Um, also, uh, you know, there's bark, which 
people can eat if they are uh, starving in the woods and they need to get certain nutrients. Um, But I wouldn't suggest it because we have, especially at the green market here, so many other great alternatives. (laughs) To learn more about the New York City green markets, visit grownyc.org. Additional info about New York State Christmas Tree Growers Association can be found at christmastreesny.org. For more programs like this, check us out at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Well, as you can tell, I was a little stuffed up in that recording, so thanks for hanging with us. It is now time for our Escape Maker segment. And you might think when I say Castello di Borghese that we were heading uh, possibly to um, somewhere outside of the Northeast region, but we're actually just taking you on a little trip to Long Island. And we are on the line with Giovanni, who's going to tell us a little bit more about Castello and, and what you guys do out there. Welcome to the show, Giovanni. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first and foremost, let's start with the name. Can you tell us where the, the name came from? Yeah, absolutely. The name refers to my father's uh, noble lineage going back to um, a small town just outside of Florence. It actually goes a little further back before that. Um, originates in uh, Sicily and eventually to a small town called San Marco outside of Florence where um, my father was born and his siblings and later they uh, they all moved to to Rome and eventually my father to Philadelphia, where he met his he met my mother and and had my sister and I, of course. Um, so the real uh, significance of the name was back about eight generations ago. Wow! It, it was exactly um, we um, we had a pope in our family, and uh, he was in in power during the time that the basilica was destroyed. And so now um, everything in that time that was built in that time features the Borghese name on it. So if you go to the Vatican City and see St. Peter and look at the center of the uh, of the uh, St. Peter's Church itself, it says Borghesius. And, of course, we've heard of the Borghese Gardens and Galleria Borghese. These are all things that uh, came about during that era when um, that family, um, you know, had its rule, if you will, <laughs> if we... Uh, if we were all still living in noble times, it would have um, a lot more, you know, significance in, this, in present time. But uh, really, it's um, it's something that my father was always very humble about and uh, didn't really, um, you know, get talked about much. But it was always a part of our family. So uh, the title of prince, if you will, followed him. And my mother and father were always referred to as uh, Prince and Princess Marco and Marie Borghese. Wow. So fast forward to 2015 and making wine in Long Island. Uh, still a royal affair. Uh, give us the lowdown. Sure, absolutely. So um, 2015 was a uh, was an excellent harvest. Um, we're, uh, we're making all sorts of wines out here on the North Fork of Long Island. We Borghese uh, feature uh, four reds and three whites, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and the very rare Pinot Noir. And for the whites, it's a Riesling, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. And with those seven grapes, we make about uh, 20, from year to year, it's either between 17 and 20 wines. And uh, that will just depend on whether we're making blends or if we have a state-level as well as reserve-level wines for each of those grapes. Um, Some rosés we make, for example, as well as a dessert wine. Um, These these all lead to... um, the different number of exactly how many wines we have on hand at all times. But um, 
Yeah, we're doing amazing things. Different vineyards in the area feature different grapes. Some are grown easier than others, depending on the specific region and soil. But um, for the most part, what you'll find out here is a, is a French, typically a French varietal. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, because you guys are a uh, escape maker endorsed destination, I know that uh, folks like myself here in Brooklyn and um, from other spots around the Northeast are in for a treat if they head your way. Um, what types of stuff do people do when they come out to visit? I mean, other than obviously drinking a lot of different wines. Sure, absolutely. So there are really a lot of things to do out here on the North Fork of Long Island. Um, what we it's a very small dense region so the idea of if you're if you're into wine solely the idea of going from vineyard to vineyard tasting wine and um, you know coming across one you love narrowing down your search to find out what vineyard is really your favorite vineyard this is something that's very easy to do you can go to many vineyards in one day if you devote a whole weekend out here you know two days of just vineyard hopping you're uh, You'll definitely find something you like before, uh, not before long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, outside of the vines, the, the vineyards themselves, um, we have strawberry picking, apple picking, um, goat cheese farms, uh, sheep farms, um, all, all sorts of uh, different types of livestock and um, fruits and vegetables, a lot of or- organic um, organic vegetable farms. It's It's really... You know, the, the wineries will always say, you know, the region will be known um, for, uh, for like, a blend of everything. You know, we, we can argue that the wineries bring the region a whole lot of attention, but if we call it just a wine region on its own, it's not necessarily true. There's really so much out here that one would enjoy doing in a, in a given weekend. And um, if I can add one more thing, I would say the, don't forget the restaurants and the, the accommodations. Every restaurant about out here is just about is a uh, farm-to-table restaurant featuring local ingredients, and the accommodations are very quaint, uh, small DMBs taking small groups at a time. We have some uh, larger-scale motels, and, of course, hotels are about 20 minutes away in Riverhead. And so with all this considered, it's, it's a real, it's, a real uh, it's easy to imagine what a weekend out here would, would entail. Yeah, and no, it's like kind of interesting. It's like an Italian family, French grape varieties, in the U.S., so it sounds like a very like all-American story. Yeah, we like to we like to joke that we have a bit of a, uh, a split personality. <laughs> when, when you come to the actual tasting room, there's a uh, terracotta flooring with big cast iron gates and large windows. Everything is is big, and we, we've been uh, we've been told it has a Spanish feel to it. So hey, <laughs> when um, when you when you uh, consider all these pieces together, it, it certainly can uh, make you ask questions. <laughs> so um, thinking about Long Island as a wine-producing region, I mean, one of the things, of course, we talk about a lot on the show is um, development pressure and the importance of keeping land in agriculture. And I, I know that's something that you face out in, in Long Island with increasing intensity. And I'm just wondering, um, are you guys involved with land conservation efforts or local land preservations? Or how do, how do you make sure that the land will be able to stay in vineyard production? Sure. So um, I know the town does really a whole lot to uh, do what they can do on the, uh, from a town's point of view. Um, they've implored five-acre zoning, and outside of that, I don't know how to speak too much on exactly what it is the town's doing to um, prevent development. But I know that they're they're an agricultural-minded um, 
bunch, right? And they, I think, for the most part, don't want to see this place um, become development after development. But really, what it stems down to is the individual landowner, mm. and they and they have to first want to, you know, want to protect the land and and, see, and keep the landscape that the North Fork is currently known for too. So. Um, I would, I'm proud to say that I w- it would break my heart to see a development go on this particular farm. It will never happen on this particular farm, but I think it's um, it comes from the landowner first because if someone had that interest, um, unless the town you know finds a way to be for or against it, obviously this is how things uh, of that nature are decided on, um, and that's yeah. how you start to see change. So we can only just kind of hope and pray that everybody wants to uh, see as little change as possible in that regard, and you know that's the only way it's going to uh, guarantee that it doesn't change. Well, I would say um, if folks want to be part of um, protecting that in the long term, the best way I can think of is to go out and visit. Um, and, and definitely folks can find you. Uh, it's just CastellaBorghese.com or kind of um, trips through Escape Maker. And then you get a delicious trip and wine and food and all of the great stuff you mentioned. And you're kind of helping support uh, great regional agriculture. It's like such a win-win, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And also for efforts as your, as your, as yours, as your current effort in getting me out there and allowing me to share with everyone what the North Fork really has to offer. Um, we're all doing this together. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Giovanni. It's been wonderful getting to chat, and hopefully we will uh, see you out in the North Fork. Um, uh, we'll make a little pilgrimage. We'll do a little Brooklyn to Long Island tour, you know? We can trade know. spots. We know. We, uh, <laughs> the, we have every wine open and available by the, gla- uh, t- uh, by the tasting as well as uh, estate tours. I think you'd really get, have a good time. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you out there for listening. Uh, This has been another episode of The Farm Report. As you know, we are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in the work that we're doing, now is the time. We're trying to raise $100,000 for the Heritage Radio Network by December 31st. Um, We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Your donation is tax deductible. So throw us a couple bucks, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click the beating heart, select the farm report so I know that you heard about giving through this show because I would love to give you a shout out and a personal thank you. Uh, in the meantime, stay up on everything that's going on with Heritage. You can follow us on Twitter. We are Heritage underscore radio. I am Aaron underscore Fairbanks. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.